Welcome to The Brilliant. This is episode 55. And this is going to be part of a couple part series where we talk about exclusion. And this is going to be about exclusion in the anarchist space. It's going to be about exclusion uh, as a form of uh, social control. And uh, it's also dovetails from the the workshop I just did at the Bastard Conference a couple weeks ago on whether or not uh, exclusion is should be an anarchist sort of form of punishment. Um, today, the conversation is going to be with uh, my friend Ben. Welcome, Ben. Thank you very much. So, I guess, Ben, the, just to start this conversation now, you have a lot of experience living in Portland, Oregon which as far as I am concerned is one of the cattier towns when it comes to social exclusion and there being a, a type of hierarchy of, of uh, sort of what's acceptable and not acceptable anarchist behavior. Um, what, are, what are your experiences? In 2009, uh, I left North Carolina and moved out to Portland, Oregon, and it, it was just a, a very different place than it is today. When I arrived there, there was a, a lot of anarchist infrastructure. And that was one of the things that I found to be so appealing about the place because, you know, there was Liberty Hall, which was the place that was hosting all of the anarchist book fairs and different uh, events that were sort of focused on the culture. And in addition to that was Laughing Horse Books, which had been around for a number of years. Uh, there was also the Red and Black Cafe, which was this sort of like worker cooperative anarchist restaurant of some, I would say, national renown. And so upon getting there, I was sort of interested to see what sorts of projects it was that I might be able to, to sink my teeth into. Mm-hmm. And so... At the time, you know, the, this, the sort of like now underused resource, which was the, the indie media site, was, was still in wide use. And I saw this message on there from some folks who were interested in opening up a free store. And so, you know, with my background in entrepreneurship, I that this would actually be kind of a fun project to work on because, you know, I, I was no stranger to doing sales calls and these sorts of things. So, you know, my ability to call up different places to get donations sent in was something that was completely inside of my experience. And so I got in touch with them and we very quickly set up a uh, meeting over at the Red and Black Cafe and began talking about the project. Uh, I would say that, you know, the, the first impressions all the way around the table were all very positive. And by the end of the meeting, we had divvied up responsibilities that all of us felt comfortable taking on. Um, and I had actually taken on quite a bit for myself because, you know, I was new to town, so I didn't have a lot of social obligations. And at the time, I was living in the school bus. And so, like, I, I also didn't have to worry about a home or like a job or anything like that. So I got right to work and, you know, built a website and found this, this place for us to actually host the free store and came up with different ideas for it, started lining up sources for goods there and, and basically 
accomplished in about a week to two weeks everything that was on my list of things to do. So then I got in touch with the the collective and said, you know, um, I would love to, to meet again because I've basically gone through my list. I've done everything. You know, I was feeling proud of myself. So I said, you know, look at, look at this website. Look at the stuff that I have. It's, it's great. And the response was that I had hijacked the project. Right. And that uh, all of the work that I had done was basically such an insult that they were going to, to back out of the project because they, they felt as though um, I had done this horrible thing. And that was really like one of my first like major experiences with this kind of stuff because like, you know, in entrepreneurship, that kind of like swift execution would be celebrated. Sure. And yet I, I was finding myself in this, this moment where basically like these anarchists were just like manufacturing this threat which I wasn't. And so like, I, I, can you, I had can you, no can you, idea. Can you talk more about, about the political perspective that was actually being articulated other than just calling you names? Like what, what did you actually perceive as being the politics of why they were saying what they were saying? I think it's tricky because the, they were associated with the sort of black rose info shop that was this location down on Mississippi Avenue. It was like uh, in a little house and they had like an info shop and this kind of thing. And now it's condos. I mean, just, um, just to be blunt, the Black Rose for many, many years, uh, basically there was a big house, which is where I assume people lived. And then they had this very teeny house on the curb that was actually like their info shop. It was like the coolest sort of setup because the people who lived in the house could operate the info shop um, because it was right there in their front yard. And that was the the collective that essentially I began butting heads with. Uh-huh. And the and the only thing because I I don't actually think that too much of it was political. Um, I I think that really it was sort of a a, a new kid on the block kind of concept where, you know, they had been talking for months about trying to get this free store off of the ground in those indie media forums, which is why I jumped in and said, hey, I'll help out because I've got experience with all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, I did try and have conversations with them, but they were very resistant after they had already sort of like drawn the line in the sand and said that I hijacked the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was asking, you know, what is going on here? Like, what can I do? And the yeah they they were just very resistant uh, but, so the but, only but, but the it does, only sound, it does sound like think, okay go ahead yeah go ahead i was just going to say the only thing i can think is that essentially um i was executing these tasks so swiftly that i perhaps didn't give enough time to the sort of like uh collective uh, meeting culture that happens among anarchists so frequently. And so rather than uh, spending a whole lot of time meeting about this stuff, I just did it. Sure. And so if any, if any political influence existed in that situation, I would say that that was probably it. I mean, just to put it another way and to put it into my terms, it sounds like, I mean, part of that collective culture is about the fact that that uh, consensus meetings are also a time where people socialize. And especially mm-hmm. if if uh, a project already has a basis of, you know, four to eight people, um, 
and you're the new person, really what they're inviting you into is a process to get to know them rather than a process to, uh, to put it in a jargon term that we use over here all the time, to GSD, i.e., or to get shit done. In other words, they weren't inviting you to get shit done. They were inviting you to be friends with them. Sure. And, you know, I, I think in my personal experience, um, again, coming from that sort of business background, maybe that was my downfall sure. because, you know, I, I am very interested in socializing. You know, one of my, one of my favorite things to do is like throw dinner parties in the town that I'm in now. And, you know, that, that's certainly like one of my favorite pastimes. But when we're talking about a, a project, you know, and essentially to me, that means a business. I assume it's all about what you say, getting shit done, and I call shut up, do something. Right. And so that that was completely outside of my experience. And I think that, you know, that, that kind of raises this other interesting thing, which is that, you know, uh, I think for even outsiders who are interested in anarchism, like uh, exclusion and these other sorts of things are, are no secret. Um. But what I find to be so interesting is that, you know, in a culture where isolation is such a problem, sure, like we're really setting the, the bar to, to participation and, and joining these like inner circles of groups, like really, really, really high when we're expecting that newcomers might actually be able to just anticipate that that is the case. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that, that perhaps... You know, the desire wasn't to get shit done, but the desire was actually to, uh, you know, do a lot of handshaking and this sort of thing. Well, I mean, um, I mean, to be generous, it's it, to expand your dating pool. It's to it's to basically find people who are like you. Sure. And I think that, uh, again, I think that community building is extremely important and extremely enjoyable. But on the, the negative side of it, I also think that it can promote groupthink and homogenization. Sure. I and mean, so it's really unfortunate that when, when someone actually is willing to get shit done, that they would be instantly shunned rather than taking a step back and saying, well, actually what we had in mind was this other thing and you did what you did. Um, so let us kind of explain what we had in mind now. But rather than, than taking that extra step, it, we went from zero to banish. But this, this requires a level of insight that, that by and large human beings don't have, uh, not to speak of anarchists specifically. But, but um, you know, it, it used to be that we, that we would make this criticism that, uh, you know, most anarchists came out of the punk rock uh, counterculture, and usually the step that they took to grow out of that counterculture was to become an anarchist. And um, and I think that what happened, you know, through the late '90s into the 20, early 200s or 2000s, was that that countercultural uh, pathway to entry started to shrink, and there became more pathways to entry, and so it became harder to build an anarchist culture or an anarchist community without sort of a lot of unspoken stuff. Like, you know, by and large, my experience in towns that have a lot of anarchist infrastructure is that there are a whole pile of cultural assumptions made about new people who come around and people who don't fit in don't make it. 
Sure enough. And, you know, on, on top of that, I, I think that there is also, uh, I, I wouldn't even say this is an unspoken expectation. I think that this is spoken of, of quite frequently that, uh, there's this focus on hyper localism of this idea that, uh, you know, should you decide to, to engage in projects or anarchist projects in particular, uh, it, it takes years to build the kind of relationships where you can sort of like trust and engage with each other in a, in a, uh, in a meaningful and useful way. And, you know, coming from the experience of a, a person who actually moves from town to town on a, a frequent basis, this, this is somewhat challenging for me because my interest in engaging with anarchists and in building anarchist projects, you know, my interest is there. Uh, but I am excluded because I, I simply don't have the, the years of relationship building in each locale that I move to. And honestly, yeah. so far I haven't found a city that, that really speaks to me in such a way that says like, Hey, maybe this is the place to settle down and actually start building those kinds of relationships. Yeah, I, I disagree with that. I, I actually think that Portland is a classic example of the counter to that to that particular example, meaning that, you know, by and large, the the loudmouths who seem to speak for Portland have only been active for two to three years. And and um, and that uh, long termers tend to tend to um, either pass out of anarchist scenes or community uh, or, or end up doing their own thing. I, uh, you know, the relationship between old timers and the actual projects that are happening is, in my experience, tenuous at best. I think the Bay Area is a perfect example where the people who are the most active right now, you know, arguably would say would be people involved in anti-file organizing. And most of those people are brand new. They, you know, they, they weren't even necessarily political just, you know, a year and a half ago prior to the Trump moment. And, um, and I, so, so, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying and I hear that, that like that, that crass, uh, peer sort of thing is totally going on. But I, but I also think that something else is going on, which is that anarchist identity is, is showing itself to be, uh, maybe paper thin or at least thinner than we anticipated. And as a result, it's, it's, it's not only being unattractive to people who come around, but it's, it's not even holding itself together all that well. Well, sure. And, you know, uh, I think that being, uh, that, that living in the, the culture that we do right now, the, the, the sort of like larger status quo culture, capitalist culture, it, it can be agitating to, to those that might desire something outside of that. Um, and so, you know, a little shaking things around, I think is inevitable and, and sometimes can even be fun. Um, but when, when we're talking about projects like free stores, or we're talking about, you know, franchises like Food Not Bombs and this sort of stuff, um, you know, these, these are not illegal projects. You sure. know, there's nothing illegal about them. And so the sort of like illegalist idea that everyone needs to be vouched for and that everyone needs to follow this, this process, which appears to be written in stone, right? Um, I, I see why it's there for particular functions, 
But when we're talking about functions that have no questionable legality, I, I fail to see why anarchist culture is still uh, so, so, so concerned with vetting people who are participating. Um, it's almost a sort of like, like knee-jerk witch hunt that, that starts to happen. And, and I'm really not sure like what the motivation is there if, if I'm, I'm, I'm correct in assuming that the motivation is for anarchism as a culture to grow. I mean, I think one of the appeals of anarchism is the fact that it's dangerous and that by joining, you're actually joining something that's like, you know, spooky and scary and your parents probably wouldn't approve of. And so it sort of goes, you know, it's a logical conclusion that if you're going to become part of a secret terrorist organization, that you have to be secret. Sure. Uh, and maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't appear as though that would still be the case for above ground projects. And so well, I guess that would be I, my big question is, does, does anything exist in anarchist culture outside of the sort of struggle that we're talking about right now? Well, sure. I mean, obviously, you're talking to a person who's a bit, uh, you know, pretty focused on that particular question. But, but the, I, I, I mean, just to to con con conclude that point, I do want to say that um, the there's going to be a kind of person that's listening to this conversation, and they're going to immediately say, "What about doxing?" And and I think that they do have a valid point, which is that. There is a type of informational security that is really important, and how do we differentiate between the sort of nonsense of pretending like we're secret agents versus the fact that you know I, I might not want uh, much of myself exposed to the internet because our enemies uh, they're not they're not idiots and they might try to find us. I mean I don't know how much you paid attention to the 4chan threads where they they tried to find out who block blockers were, but it was mm -hmm. amazing and it was terrifying. And and while that might be true, and perhaps working on a project like a free store, uh, you know, let's say that you actually did have an undercover agent that was trying to snoop around and get information on anarchists, and so maybe they're using this kind of like uh, safe project to build rapport with them. Uh, and then later on use that information. But that seems really far-fetched because, like, I, I just don't see that kind of effectiveness as being, like, a, a very real possibility. Um, what do you mean? I, I guess, like, what, what I mean is that uh, I think that the state is both more effective and far less effective than we could ever imagine. And so if the concern here is that someone might be doxxed because of their participation in anarchist projects, I think that is a very real problem, um, especially if what we're talking about is a tactic like black block. Hmm. But what I'm also trying to say is that if we're doing something like, uh, like the, the wingnut house in Virginia or the free store, or food not bombs or little black cart, right? See, like any number of these things, and I would say that yours might even be a little bit more dangerous because of the content that you're printing. Sure. But like any number of these things, I, I just don't see the 
the, the attraction to doxing any of these people or the fear that might be involved with doxing any of these people because, like, uh, they're not doing anything illegal, you know? Like, the, the motivation is sort of lacking there. Unless we're talking about neo-Nazis who just fucking hate uh, anarchists, you know, that might be a real threat. Um, but again, if you're doing an above-ground project, like, that's... I would assume that you wouldn't do it, like, mask up with a pseudonym all the time because you're interacting with the public. So that wouldn't be a very, like, effective... Uh, you know, business front then, would it? Sure. Well, I mean, I, 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 I mostly I mentioned this because, um, uh, while I'm not on speaking terms with very many people uh, from this world, a certain activist project recently reached out to me to say that some of my information could be found. At, um, there's a thing called Who Is, which is a way to search mm -hmm. for someone, uh, search for information on who owns a website. And, you know, I own several dozen domains that almost most of which have anarchist, uh, uh, an anarchist orientation. And, you know, nowadays, like as much of our identity lives online, if not more of it, and you could find out a lot of information, including my home address, uh, through judicious searches of who is and some of my domains. And, um, and so they, they basically reached out to me to warn me about this because obviously they were concerned about themselves. And, and, you know, it's, it's a real issue. Like it's, it, now, now that said, you know, I think that really what we're talking about is how do we differentiate between our online identities and who we are in person? And is this secret agent sort of a persona that most anarchists seem to have? Is it, to what extent is it hurting us? And I think it's hurting us to a great degree you know, for exactly the reasons that you're naming. Well, sure. And, you know, there's even like a, a, a pretty large uh, project that I've been involved in recently where, you know, I, I've been involved in sort of a lot of the same questions, which is, you know, in interacting with a, a number of new people who don't know each other, um, how is it that vetting can happen in a time frame where we can remain effective? And I think that one of the unfortunate realities that comes out of that is this, this sort of like power grab for the, the narrative control. And what I mean by that is if you have a group of people who are interested in like producing a project or, or pursuing the same goals, but they have different ideas on, on how to approach it. Hmm. Um, and especially if uh, a number of those people are new and unfamiliar with each other and everyone else. Um, and then they are interacting with a group of people who um, actually have a very distinct idea about uh, how things should proceed. There's, there's this sort of like, uh, response to bury that sort of innovation and maintain these sort of sanctioned ideas. Sure. And the, the thing that I find to be the most curious about that kind of pulls back to, you know, the, the, the concept that we were talking about a moment ago, which is like, um, if, if the vetting process is more about, hyper-localism and relationships and less about uh, like the, the, the kind of 
results that we produce and the kind of projects that we actually have uh, as part of our history, um, where exactly does that sway come from, right? Because it's sort of like anarchists are thus allowed to sort of lump and collect social capital. And whenever a concept comes in that might either challenge that or even be a direct threat to that because uh, it is a different collection of social capital that is, is sort of like coming to the, to the table, it, it becomes the sort of scenario in my experience that's actually really similar to troll culture where like, uh, you know, the, the, the troll is so concerned that this person, often a female, is garnishing so much attention online from what they believe to be an like, undeserved reason. And so because they believe that this attention and social capital is scarce, then they begin attacking and doxing and discrediting this person who they believe is stealing their precious attention and social capital. Let me stop you there because yeah. I have a ton of questions about this uh, about this train of thought because I I, I think that the, this term social capital feels fairly new in, in the way in which you're using it and uh, mostly I see this used online as an accusation against other people and um, you know like one of the reasons why I'm so hostile to Marx and to Marxism is because of of one of the assumptions that we're talking about in the context of social capital, which is constraint or that, that there are limits. And, you know, obviously there are material limits to how much gold there is in the world or whatever, but I'm not sure, you know, that I've ever agreed that we as humans living on the planet should be defined by those constraints, especially to the, to the extent to which we are in capitalism and in how people define value and, and all the rest. I mostly mention that because social capital, the idea that it's a limited commodity, that seems like the craziest thing I've ever heard. It is crazy. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. And, and I think, you know, the, the only way that I can wrap my head around it is to look at the sort of like attention economy stuff that also floats around online quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, con the concept goes basically that, you know, we're all so busy that... Uh, you know, even advertising has to be so much shorter now because we're, we're being inundated with all of these calls for our attention, right? Yes. And since, you know, I grew up in a generation of folks who got to experience the, the birth of social media and the idea of the self-brand and the idea that, like, we carry that brand with us everywhere we go, from job to job, from school to grave, like, all of that is, is my continuous brand. And, and when, we, when we exist in this attention economy with such uh, limited time for everyone, right, when, when one of these sort of, like, new brands pops up and begins taking that precious attention away from another one of these brands, then, then that essentially is what, what it is that I'm referring to in terms of um, these, these people who have spent a great deal of time organizing and building relationships locally 
who then are disrupted by this newcomer who brings with them this brand and reputation of their own and is also highly effective and then begins taking attention away from them, they, they then feel under threat and suspect of what it is that's happening here. So, and, so while, while, I, while yeah. I, agree, I agree with what it is that you're saying and, and the heart of what it is that you're saying, I totally understand why most anarchists, uh, why they would feel uncomfortable with the, with the direction you're taking this in because you're using language that's much more common, commonly used in business culture. And really what you're talking about are insecure people and how insecure people deal with perceived threats. Well, sure, but it also sounds an awful like like uh, competition in business. Yes, oh, and no, business absolutely. reacts the exact same way because business is self-conscious. Right, well, sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we, not, not to speak about the, the larger ones, of course, but, you know, small businesses are self-conscious about whether or not they're going to you know, make their bills and, and make what they need to in order to, to continue doing what it is that they're doing on, on the project that they supposedly enjoy. Sure. And so when coffee shop A has been, you know, running along swimmingly for years and has accomplished at building a, a fine customer base, and then coffee shop B moves in across the street and actually has a better product or they're faster or they look better or like whatever it might be. And they start pulling from that base, you know, the coffee shop A is going to start, you know, getting pissed, feeling threat. Right. And, and, and I feel like the, the same is going on in, in the anarchist world. It, it's really the, the, the similarity is uh, like traditional capitalism versus social capitalism. And the, the, the actions and reactions are exactly the same, in my opinion. Yeah, I just had the, a brutal conversation a couple of weeks ago that was basically someone sitting down with me and accusing me of being incredibly competitive um, to their project, which is considerably larger than ours. And they basically then uh, had a, a clear documentation of all of the different times in which their project had been mentioned by me. And... Um, and they basically outlined uh, all the attempts that they perceived at us, quote unquote, competing with them by by trying to bring them down in such a way that made me f feel somewhat like, Pot, why are you calling the kettle black? It was it was a really surreal moment. Yeah. Um, I, I think it becomes really challenging because, you know, the, the difference between these two things is that Entrepreneurship, as I was saying earlier, actually uh, celebrates uh, productivity, effectiveness, outcome, these sorts of things. Whereas in anarchism, it, it is much more about, uh, I, I think that rapport is actually celebrated more than outcome. And where I think that this gets really interesting is the sort of concept of do anarchists actually value philosophy more than outcome? Because a lot of the, the sort of anarchist writing that I've seen is purely continental and very little analytical philosophy. Sure. And I wonder if the, the, the sort of like the, the bank of social capital in these kinds of situations isn't uh, one's ability to spew forth 
like page after page after page after page after page of continental philosophy, which actually means nothing when it can't be compared to anything, especially if there's no like outcome or no infrastructure, no projects, like nothing. And well, so I, so, well, okay. So, so, so let's extend this, uh, uh, cause you're obviously, uh, being very provocative and, uh, what would an anarchism that's built on analytical philosophy or more pointedly is built on results rather than process look like to you? I think that that would be a very challenging thing for me to be able to personally, uh, very quickly espouse. And I think that one of the reasons for that is because I've had so many of these kinds of experiences where, uh, I'm the kind of person who, while I enjoy and even romanticize the, uh, inefficient collective decision-making processes, like, you know, Curious George Brigade did this piece where they call it the, the inefficient utopia. And I found that to be very enjoyable and romantic, right? They, they were um, really interesting in terms of their thought process. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, but, you know, there's another person who produces content that I also greatly respect. And what he says is ideas are shit and execution is the game. And so, like, what I, what I come back to is, um, you know, what would that look like? Well, it would look like getting shit done that is also being called anarchist. Because I, I do think that having the name is incredibly important. Um, in addition to that, I also don't think that inherently there's anything flawed with uh, collective decision-making. But what we haven't yet figured out how to do very well is fuse the culture between collectivism and individualism. Uh, sure. What we end yeah, up with is this, this issue, again, where the responsibilities of these very large projects fall onto a minority of its membership, right? Like two, three people doing all of the work in a project that sometimes 10 to 30 people benefit from. You know, I, and, I, obviously I, I'm sensitive to that criticism, um, mostly because that's also true of most businesses, that's definitely true. And, and that isn't to say that business has things right. It obviously doesn't. Um, I, and that is also one of these things that makes this, this a, a sort of challenging question to, to imagine is like, you know, where exactly do we draw the inspiration from in order to answer such a large question? And in my opinion, you know, it might be kind of ham-fisted, but I think it's just about shutting up and doing stuff. Like, I, I really think that the issue here is that what, what we have is a security culture. And what we do not have is a culture that fosters innovation. And what we need right now isn't a bunch of fucking dusty books from 100 years ago plus but like a, a brand new way of actually being able to develop and execute projects and develop and uh, it, create enduring relationships and answer such questions as like, 
how is it that we can overcome isolation? How is it that we can live our daily life as anarchists more than we do as capitalists? And all we do is use continental philosophy to debate about old ideas or debate about the questions themselves without actually like having any tangible outcomes to debate in terms of whether or not it was right or wrong to produce those results. And I think that would be a fine starting place is like, hmm. get off your fucking computer, like go out and actually do something like get off of social media, do something. So, and then like, let's discuss that. Like, let's, let's talk about what you did to do it. Maybe copycat it, maybe like open source it and do it better. But the fact is that like all we're discussing are ideas that in and of themselves without execution are meaningless. Okay, but those, I mean, basically you're doing the same thing that you're accusing others of doing, which is sort of building a big, we'll call it like mausoleum. And what what would you say are examples where you feel like anarchists have done this? Like, would you, well, I mean, basically, it seems like you're pointing to Food Not Bombs as being a model of perfect anarchist organizations. No, I think that, you know, and this isn't to say that I think that this would work today, but I wish it would. You know, the, the uh, autonomy model of like building uh, info shops and, you know, using those as social centers so that people were able to come together uh, and, and uh, brainstorm and come up with ideas of, of doing other projects and continuing to expand their infrastructure. Like, I thought that was a fine idea. And, you know, obviously it, it wasn't able to, to survive in the, the face of capitalism. I do wonder what it might be like had there been this massive network of collaborating social centers where especially traveling folks like myself might actually be able to, you know, move from one to another and, and hopefully carry reputation with themselves. Um, but that kind of infrastructure, you know, isn't something that really exists. And I think and, that for a minute and it, there, and it probably it probably won't again until there's a major economic collapse. Right. Um, I, I, I think that for a minute there, the Internet, the Web showed promise. And the, the issue that happened there was that while the door was open for us to, to build our own legitimate infrastructure online, for many reasons, the, the, the opportunity was really just not not fully realized. So I think the, the big question here is how, how would I then, if, if I am willing to, to be provocative and to, to shit on everyone's like parade here, you know, what is it that I would put forward and say, you know, we might do instead? Yeah. And all I can really say is, you know, uh, in each of these cities that I've been, I have tried to produce projects that could stand on their own that I was able to teach others how to operate. And my hope was that if they were to then operate it, I would be able to step back and produce a similar project in another location. And that didn't work very well. You know, that was another one of those kinds of times where I realized that it actually does usually end up being one or 
a small set of individuals who are producing the, the most work or, or those who have the, the right experience to be able to, to get that work done because, you know, anarchists also aren't very good at uh, job training, for example. <laughs> so where I'm kind of stuck is in trying to figure out, I guess for myself, what that answer is outside of being location bound. Because to me, it, it would have to be location less in order to be effective. And I think that mm-hmm. for me, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I actually wonder if a nomadic anarchism might actually remove us further from capitalism than a hyper-localized one. And I know that syndicalists would think that was insane because, you know, the idea is that we take over the factories and then we slowly take over the city and then, like, you know, we have green roofs and solar panels and all this kind of stuff, and that's fine. But, like... um, I mean, we're we're talking about a model. We're not talking about something that is necessarily possible. But in terms of talking about a model, how could you have a nomadic anarchism in this world without starting out with a crew of people, at the very least. Exactly. Because then you're just talking about, talking about one person traveling about, right? Like, that's, that, that isn't so different than what we already have, and it looks like atomized capitalistic culture. And so this is where I think that, you know, the, again, this question of exclusion starts to kind of come up, which is that that outcome would not be possible in the current circumstances, because what we have are very insular uh, squads or cliques or whatever it is that, you know, one might want to call them with all of their sort of like uh, behaviors that are expected, but not made clear to newcomers. That is um, where our only real, uh, means of encouraging the adoption of certain behaviors is banishment. And today, since we can't banish the Nazis, they've actually stepped it up a little bit and like started fighting them. But like this, this too is uh, not really to the point of trying to figure out exactly how it is that we can build a culture that is capable of innovation and also capable of expansion. Um, you know, what, what I think would be a very interesting to see, thing to see now that, like, we have uh, sort of Antifa bubbling back up into uh, a, a known reputation is are those behaviors now going to carry on into the, the anarchist culture? So if an anarchist says to another anarchist, you are shunned, and those anarchists keep showing up, keep producing like projects, keep building reputation, keep threatening their social capital, I mean, are we all just going to start fighting each other? I mean, that sounds fine. Valhalla sounds fucking great to me. But like, is that the result? Because well, I, th- I think that we can argue that, that perhaps that's what's happening right now. Sure. Um, And so I think the only way to be able to answer the question of what does that kind of model look like 
I mean, yes, the first step would definitely be trying to figure out a way to fuse individualism and collectivism. There's no doubt about that. Um, but how is it that we can develop behaviors that actually encourage innovation rather than um, purely, purely focusing on security? Because if we can't do that, we can be post anything we want, but we won't be post anything at all if we never actually do anything new. So in the, in the anarchist context, because obviously the word innovation is primarily used by entrepreneurial culture to refer to their own behavior and, quote-unquote, disrupting an uh, uh, old industry, what would the innovation look like in the anarchist space? And specifically, what would, what would be disrupted? Within anarchism, as in, like, how, how could anarchism itself be disrupted and not how would anarchism disrupt capitalism? Am I following you? Well, there's obviously there's two questions in there. One question would be, what would anarchist innovation look like that would break perhaps ossified, you know, industries within the anarchist space? And then secondarily, what would it look like for anarchists to, to start disrupting capitalism if that were possible? Yeah, um... Well, what, what, Again, why don't we start out with yes. just an example when you're referring you're, when you're referring to anarchist innovation. What's what are two or three examples that you're thinking about? Well, infrastructure, I think, is the one that I'm almost always thinking about, and I, I am usually quite pessimistic about thinking very long about this because I, I just don't see it ever happening. How do you build, um, infra but, do you build anarchist infrastructure if you move around all the time? Well, actually, the example that I was about to give is, you know, if isolation is one of the challenges, then one of the demands that anarchism has is lessening isolation. And so a piece of infrastructure that I think would be you know, very cool would be uh, to have a sort of like anarchist uh, transportation uh, uh, collective. And I think that like... There was a, a, a glimpse of this during the DIY period where, like, you know, people were able to, like, bands who were traveling were able to, you know, get the gas money to go from place to place if they were lucky uh, at each of the shows that they were playing as they were going. And then sometimes people would ride with them in this, in this sort of thing. Um, and I think that even, even in, in having the DIY scene, um, and having these bands be the sort of like uh, go-betweens between these different isolated localized groups actually allowed for reputation to travel from group to group so that, you know, two separated hyper-localized collectives would actually know through this band, oh, no, that other group is actually cool. We can talk to them because this person has vetted them, Right. I mean, it's we, funny, you know, as, as, as someone who was, who was, you know, alive and kicking in the 90s, it's, it's humorous to talk about, um, uh, like, love of the 90s. And yeah. um, uh, a pointed example of what you're talking to was a magazine that Max from Rock and Roll did about once a year called Book Your Own Fucking Life. And the idea of it was exactly what you're referring to. The, the problem is, is that it created a, a kind of social hierarchy where bands were at the top of the the food chain and anybody right. who wasn't in a band couldn't necessarily take advantage of this, you know, new system of networking and, and traveling around. And I'm, 
I mean, I'm not saying that that's a, a bad thing necessarily because I, as a person that booked, that books book tours all the time, um, I've used book, book my own fucking life as a way to, to get started in a town where I don't have other contacts. Um, uh, but I, I think that the thing that's terrifying about the internet is, you know, by and large, people can say that they're going to an event on Facebook and never attend. I've had multiple events where a tenth of the number of people have arrived than who said they were going to come. And, um, and that sort of speaks to like a problem about thinking about something like that in the future. But maybe have a, a couple more examples of that kind of disruption because I think that's a good one. Yeah, sure. You know, uh, I think another one, and this is one that, that capitalism kind of finds impossible to consider, which I think makes it valuable um, and is equally impossible, which is, you know, the great thing about being pessimistic about everything. Um, E.F. Schumacher, the economist, talked a little bit about this and, and basically said that, um, you know, if you're looking at an economy which is, you know, vastly depressed, with really like no means of uh, changing its course. The, the only way that he saw to actually uh, disrupt that isn't to start one business or inject it with capital or job training or any of this sort of thing, but it was actually to start 11 businesses all at once where each of them was one of the markets for another. And then what this would allow is for all of them to have automatically a built-in customer base in each other as essentially they would grow and begin building their customer base to those who are outside of their business network. Hmm. And when I was first reading this concept, I was just like, you know, this sounds like horseshit. Um, you know, it, it sounded like a flight of fancy. But what's interesting is to see these, these food hubs that are starting to pop up now. And they are doing this model in quite a good way. Um, where, where essentially they are building out entire supply chains that they have total control over. And rather than, you know, owning each of those parts privately, in owning the entire structure, uh, they are encouraging for the first time, like small farmers and small food businesses to actually start uh, growing in numbers again. And we're starting to see other businesses which are also using, you know, a similar model like the, the Evergreen Cooperatives. Uh, those are over in Ohio. And again, very similar. I would actually say that the more uh, well-known uh, uh, comparison here to this, you know, uh, a group of listeners would be uh, Mondragon. And again, like, you know, plenty of criticisms for them. I'm not, you know, placing them as an ideal, but more just as an example of what the sort of evergreens are. And um, I, I think that this is a kind of concept that, that could be very interesting, which is like, we've been focused for so long on the factory takeover in a marketplace who doesn't do any manufacturing, right? What if we were to start thinking about how it is that we can build multiple businesses simultaneously like this, right? So, you know, especially when so much business is online, you know, I, I, I wish that we could have anarchist marketing firms, you know, 
or like anarchist sales teams that were actually willing to like sell books, book shows, like all of these things that all of us need, you know, like why aren't anarchists making their own hoodies and then having these like sales and marketing teams, like help them sell them. The obvious answer is that they are RSVPing to events and then not showing up. So they're not going to show up to produce things for themselves either. Right. Like anarchists are very good at reacting, but not very good at self-starting. So again, but again, I, I don't second, think that's about anarchists. I, I don't think that's my anarchists. Sure. It's perhaps, perhaps more of a human concern right now. <laughs> yeah. But we are human, I think. <laughs> no, sure. But, and, and also, you know, it's, it's unfair to say this, but I'll say it anyways, which is that anarchists, uh, right now feel a lot like millennials. And many of the things that you can accuse millennials of, you can also accuse anarchists of. Absolutely. And so, um, well, yeah. because because the topic of what we're talking about today is exclusion, I was wondering if there were any more examples you wanted to, to talk about of exclusion in your own life uh, that you wanted to wrap up because we're actually coming towards the end of our time. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of the stuff that we've talked about here kind of touches, I mean, on those kinds of experiences that, that I've had, you know, because, yeah. you know, in, in participating in, in Occupy New Haven, Connecticut, um, which was in proximity, of course, to Occupy Wall Street. So we, we had people kind of going back and forth across the sound. Um, we were able to, to remain as a camp for six months. And there was some really fascinating social stuff that was going on there, too. Um, and I, I, I guess the one thing, the one experience that I take away from that to, to just, you know, wrap all of this back in. And, and this is, this is maybe the, the, the third thing that I would have wanted to, to mention is those, we small number of people who were helping to keep the camp clean and, keep everyone like uh, in high spirits and like make sure that there was food around camp um, organizing around like media calls and all these sorts of things, essentially like uh, taking care of the mundane nitty gritty, the, the everyday activities that were actually helping the, the camp to stay alive. I, I think that there's a lot of discussion that we've had so far about um, what it means when, anarchists and people in general exclude those who threaten them for one reason or another. Um, and that kind of external exclusion is something that, again, has been talked about frequently. But one of the things that I find to be very interesting is what happens when you have a group or an individual who decides to exclude themselves. And what we did at Occupy New Haven was there were five of us who were relatively well known around the camp uh, and in the media and so forth. And we saw the way that the movement was going. And so we said to ourselves, you know, Occupy is not going to last forever. So what's next? It's phase two. And for us, what that looked like was starting this collective house in this nearby neighborhood that was kind of dangerous, but like also had a really tight knit neighborhood. So it was fine. 
and begin getting to know the neighbors, clean up the neighborhood, start gardens, you know, this, this sort of like very common, uh, you know, anarchist narrative. Mm-hmm. And the fascinating thing was that when we, when we decided to do that, we said, okay, if we're going to start phase two, then that means that phase one is over for us. And so we ghosted the camp. We left in the middle of the night. We left all of our tents set up and we didn't tell anyone where we were going. And we like put all of our cell phones into a bucket and we just went off the radar. And weeks later, we went back to the camp and it was in complete disarray. And it was, it was challenging to acknowledge that after excluding ourselves, it collapsed. And I, I, I question so much, like, you know, what, what happens with these anarchist projects, with these, these pieces of infrastructure, which are so, so valuable when, you know, we're simply too tired to carry on or, or incapable to either afford it or find the time or, you know, whatever it might be. Like, what does it mean when we exclude ourselves to the extent that we essentially, like, uh, accept the defeat of our movement growing in a visible and non-philosophical way? I want to respond to that in two parts. The first is that it's, uh, that narrative sounds an awful lot like uh, the Ayn Rand uh, Galt um, option. Um, if you recall, I'm not sure if it was Fountainhead or Alice Shrugged, but basically the, um, the intelligent capitalist class that, uh, obviously was Ayn Rand's, uh, goal, uh, organized themselves to retreat from public life and essentially allow the Democrats and the, and the pond scum of humanity to rule themselves. And of course, they suffered until John Galt came back. Uh, but the second example is an anarchist example. Uh, which is to, which is, and this is a, of course, a fairly common feature in a lot of anarchist projects where you have a founder, you have someone who had some vision, but then, you know, once, once the project gets up and rolling, uh, the vision changes or shifts or, or perhaps they're not as convincing, you know, on day 10 as they were on day one, or they get exhausted and tired of doing, doing a thing. So, um, we had this project here in the Bay Area and there was a, a founder of the project who basically retreated once, once things got established and they more or less said, um, more or less, basically exactly what it is that you're saying, which is, um, that it was meant to be, if it, if it can, you know, if it can stand up without me. And, um, and I think that I personally see the, that it was the five of you's responsibility to, to help maintain that thing as much as it was anyone else's. And that if you didn't train people and if you didn't hand it off, you know, correctly to the next generation, of course it was going to fail. You know, that's the nature of being sort of influential organizers or, or radicals. And so I'm very curious to see how it is that we might become better at not only self-starting, but also fostering those kinds of relationships. And I, I, I think that one thing that I, I really want to point out here too is that while I am full of criticism in this moment, that uh, it isn't to say that 
so many of the ideas that are being tried right now shouldn't be tried and that they might not work because they might. Um, I think that the most important thing that could be going on right now is experimentation and exactly what you were just saying, which is, uh, I guess the way I would describe it is sort of open sourcing the process and showing everyone every step of the way from the start to an end of a project. Because, you know, like people don't know what the middle of a startup phase looks like. You know, people know about um, what opening a new project looks like and what the, the end result when the media might be paying attention to them looks like, but not the struggle in between. And so they don't sure. do it because they're so scared about that unknown part. So the more of that information that we can be sharing, I, I think the better. But so much of this like piss and vinegar that I'm experiencing right now is because like this is a culture of people whom I share so much in common with and whom I feel delighted by whenever I, I come across them. And so my, my ultimate hope and hope hurts so frequently is that something will come out of this and that all of us will actually be able to live and experience a, a daily cultural interaction that reflects the way that we feel. And so this, 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 you know, criticism that I'm feeling right now is coming from a place where I know that I don't yet have so many of these answers and I certainly haven't been able to reach into the abyss and pull back this thing that hasn't been discovered yet and say to everyone like, this is it, this is what we have to be doing, right? So I'm not trying to berate anyone for their inability to do that. But I also think that anyone who's feeling that right now like, I, I think that feeling is totally forgivable because, like, all of us, I think, are waiting and some of us are experimenting with what that next thing might be. Um, and all of us respond to not having it in different ways. I just really, really, really hope that we keep trying to figure out what it is and we don't just keep getting on fucking Facebook to complain about it. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me.